This is Jamda On The Go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for April 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, we'll be discussing some selected articles from the April issue of Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome back one of our co-editors-in-chief of our journal, Dr. Barbara Resnick. We are also thrilled today to have with us one of the co-authors of a paper that we'll be reviewing today, and that's Ms. Ann Reddy. So Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and the doctoral program, uh, and co-directs the biology and behavior across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. Barb holds the Sonia Ziporkin Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. And as mentioned, also with us is Anne Reddy a co-author with Ms. Beyer on this paper on infection control peer coaching that we'll be discussing. Ms. Reddy is the Research Development Project Manager at the Center for Long-Term Care Quality and Innovation at Brown University, a great, great institution and a great department over there. Uh, and Anne's responsibilities encompass both strategic and programmatic activities, including exploring promising innovations to study, providing project management leadership for funded studies, and broadly communicating research findings. Anne's passion for long-term care began at the Jewish Home and Hospital in New York, includes her graduate studies at Brown, and most recently involved serving as a consultant for the American Healthcare Association. Anne was integral to the hands-on activities related to the ICANN study, and we are thrilled to have her with us today. So welcome, Dr. Resnick and Ms. Reddy. Thank you. (laughs) Happy to be here. All right. Uh, uh, by the way, Anne, was that uh, the the Jewish home? Was that the the place in Riverdale? Yes, there's three locations. So I worked in Manhattan, Bronx, and there's one in Westchester as well. Uh huh. Well, I used to I used to teach in Riverdale, teach high school many many years ago. So. Oh, how nice. Anyway, all right. So. Uh, Today, your editors have chosen four articles we'll be highlighting from the April issue that we think will be of particular interest to our audience. These topics include a focus on an implementation study testing an infection control peer coaching program referred to as infection control amplification in nursing centers, or ICANN. Then the relationship between oral health and frailty in older adults in the United Kingdom and the United States. Then state variation in antipsychotic use among assisted living residents with dementia. And the last paper we'll discuss uh, will be a systematic review addressing the value of fully immersive virtual reality on well-being in older adults. So quite a smorgasbord of, uh, of offerings today. 
So we're going to kick it off with your paper, Ms. Reddy. Your work is interesting from a number of perspectives. First, in terms of how it can help infection control in nursing homes, obviously very important these days. And second, what it teaches us about implementing good clinical practice. And there's been so much interest in implementation science these days since it can often take years or even a decade or more for clinical evidence to actually change practice on a large scale basis. And you know, we, we see that in our care setting with the continued overuse of antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria, for example. But uh, anyway, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the impetus for exploring this issue and, and you know, how it all came together? Sure. Thank you, Carl, for that introduction to our work. I'll start by saying that our research center, the Center for Long-Term Care Quality and Innovation, focuses on pragmatic research or having providers implement programs or interventions using their typical workflows or processes. So we have an emphasis on partnership. We work closely with providers and others to test interventions. And when there isn't an intervention yet developed, we partner to create one as we did in this infection control program. So for this specific program, we worked in partnership with the Connecticut Department of Public Health. We started this project in the spring of 2021. So in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, yeah, it was a challenge as you can imagine. Um, the Connecticut Department of Public Health identified a need to support infection preventionists in monitoring infection control best practices. But due to the challenges of the COVID pandemic and the fact that many nursing centers only have one infection preventionist on staff, we focused on extending the reach of the infection preventionist across shifts or extending throughout the nursing center. So to briefly explain the program, we designed ICANN with a three-pronged approach. The first key element is peer coaches. These coaches were there to provide real-time feedback on infection control practices to their coworkers. And we framed this with the motto, see something, say something. Mm -hmm. This was designed to develop a culture of supportive mutual accountability. And then the second key element was daily huddles, by which we mean a quick stand-up meeting that acted as touch points for the coaches to share information across shifts and allowed the infection preventionists to have a sense of key target areas for improvement or focus based on what the coaches saw that day. Mm -hmm. And then the third element was weekly audit data collected about hand hygiene, masking, and transmission-based precautions. But overall, our objective was to pilot the program in partnership with the participating nursing center staff, the infection preventionists, and to use the feedback from these partners to refine the coaching program. And if I can, I would love to take a moment here to acknowledge the nursing homes participating in this program, their effort and their collaboration and open sharing of feedback is what allowed us to refine the program to make it as feasible as possible. Yeah, that's great. And I know sometimes, especially when in the midst of the pandemic, but anytime, you know, nursing staff, a lot of times in a nursing home are pretty stretched. Uh, And so it's, it's great when you can get that kind of um, 
you know, support, the uh, boots on the ground support, because that, that's the only way something like this is going to work, right? Uh, exactly. And what were some of your challenges in conducting this study? Yes. Um, as you can imagine, many studies and programs encountered multiple challenges during the pandemic. Um, given that this was a co-design or co-refine process, we engaged weekly with the infection preventionists to hear how things were going, to learn where we could make an adjustment or improvement to the program. So during these weekly calls with the infection preventionists, the biggest concern, as you said, Carl, we heard staff was exhausted, staff working extra shifts, facing other pressing priorities related to the pandemic. It was really difficult to incorporate changes into daily routines, and it was understandably hard for them to dedicate time to this pilot. But um, overall, what we learned was that our initial program put too much responsibility on the infection preventionists. So by listening and understanding the environment and the barriers, we evolved the program to a team-based approach. Mm -hmm. And if I can, I'd also like to mention, on the other hand, during our weekly calls, we also heard some wonderful stories of staff feeling empowered by the ICANN program to raise an issue or remind a coworker to put on their goggles. We heard that involving other departments within the center heightened the awareness and the importance of infection control across the center. Did, uh, did some people not take kindly to being called out on, say, you know, not like not having their mask over their nose, <laughs> not washing their hands and stuff like that? Oh, yes. I love that question. Yes, of course. You know, it's it's human nature um, to maybe shy away from that. But we offered support through the program. So we offer um, kind ways or supportive ways of reminding coworkers. That was part of the refinement that we also made to the program. Sometimes it's easier to base what you're going to say when you have a little prompt in front uh -huh. of you. So like, um, how would you do that? Like, it, what, what can you give me an example of what you might say if you busted somebody uh, going into the next room without washing their hands? <laughs> yes. I think it's more about taking the approach of I'm, I'm not busting you, we're in this together. <laughs> so, you know, it was really helpful that see something, say something motto. It sounds so simple, but it really broadens the perspective. So everyone in the center is now on alert and maybe less um, caught off guard if corrections are made. But, you know, some of the supportive comments might be it's safer for you. It's safer for all of us if you pull your mask above your nose just sort of that reframing rather than I caught you doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really good advice. And I, I can just say, I mean, personally, I, many times I saw people doing things and I, I just, I always felt like, uh, you know, I'm not their parent and I, I shouldn't be the one to be uh, correcting them, but yet, you know, it's so important that I couldn't help myself. And I always tried to do it in a nice way, but it's, I think if you create a culture like that, that seems like a good uh uh, a good strategy. I wonder, did they did they bust some doctors not washing their hands? <laughs> There's actually one great story of a nurse aide who had the courage to approach a director of nursing who wasn't wearing their goggles. They were up on the top of their head. 
Um, there was one nice story from a nursing home about that and how this program gave the aide the courage to go up to anyone in the nursing home to make a correction. And um, there was also a group of aides that were able to raise some infection control concerns to, you know, other positions. And it, I think it really made everyone feel empowered. We, we had one infection preventionist say, it's much more effective to have a bigger team take on this task. It takes the burden off of being the only infection control nurse. Yeah, that's a great point. So, Anne, what are your take-home messages here? Uh, how do you think uh, the findings of this study might uh, help others or be scalable? And it, do you think there's more research that needs to be done? Yes, I think I would say the research team needs to partner with providers, in our case, nursing home staff, to understand their working environment, understand what their day-to-day -day activities look like, where their barriers to implementing a program or an intervention. I think by collecting feedback, we were able to adjust ICANN to a more feasible program. The comments and the stories about how the implementation was going from the infection preventionists were extremely important for us. And the end result is a program that's grounded in real world information from the infection preventionists. Mm -hmm. So in terms of you know, next step in research, I think focusing on partnership establishment, getting feedback from program participants can help researchers learn so much to better prepare for the next study. And for ICANN specifically, while we refined the program into one that we think will be more feasible, we did not measure outcomes during the pilot. So there's still an opportunity to formally test the program. Right, right. Although it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't have a measurable, you know, improvement on, on some of the, uh, the parameters that were, you know, the hand hygiene and whatnot. Um, well, let's see, Dr. Resnick, do you have any comments or questions for Anne? Yeah, I, I do, Anne. I'm uh, fa fascinated by your description of the coaches and your sort of positive responses about them. I also do a lot of implementation research, and sometimes I get pushback from people uh, in the research world that... They don't really believe in the use of champions. Um, they think that it just places more pressure on an individual and that we shouldn't have champions at all. And I'm curious, I always use, I, I, and I use the term champion, uh, champion, I think you use coaches, but I, it sounds like they're pretty much the same thing. So I'm curious if you got any negative pushback from people or found that there were people that didn't want to be your champions. Kyle alluded to it a little bit, the people that were a little shy about saying anything. I'm just curious. Yes, I think there's um, two aspects to that. So I'll address the champion aspect first. And from our perspective, in ICANN, we put the champion role more on the infection preventionist as they were 
taking ownership of the ICANN program. But what we learned was that might be too much for one person, one champion. So in the revised ICANN program, we shifted to a team-based approach, which I think works well as the program is about changing the culture towards mutual accountability in a supportive manner, which requires motivation and buy-in from many roles across the center. So we did hear exactly that, Barb. It's a lot to put the champion role on, on one person. But I think champions are essential if the right person or the right people are selected. And when a program aligns with the center's goals or the organization's goals and addresses a need, then champions can amplify the message and act as a reminder for the importance of the program. In terms of the second portion, in terms of the coaches, you're exactly right. It is hard. Not everyone wants to be identified as a coach. Not everyone is comfortable stepping into that role. And part of broadening the program to a team-based approach is creatively thinking of who could be identified as a coach and who would be comfortable in that role from a team perspective. Yeah, that that's... Very, very um, helpful and true. And, you know, we we kind of joke the process that we sometimes use to identify champions is we look for volunteers. We look for um, people that are identified by leadership and we look for people that are identified by their peers. And then we pick the people that have been in all three groups because mm-hmm. it's it is. Hard to know. So I, I have another question. Um, pragmatic trials should ideally have interventions that allow for flexibility using maybe some of the resources, for example, or some of the intervention components. It seems your findings supported that need that more flexibility. Uh, should be provided to the facilities. And I'd just be curious again to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, I agree. I think flexibility is ideal. And in pragmatic research, we're working to balance the research needs and the real world context for a flexible implementation. In this program, one example would be the daily huddles with coaches and infection preventionists. Those were a challenge to implement, and we heard that from the infection preventionists on our weekly calls. So in terms of flexibility, to your point, Barb, the revised program, um, we offer a range of options for daily communication touch points rather than focusing solely on a huddle. So in any manner feasible where the coaches and the infection preventionists can have a communication touch point, that would maintain the feedback loop that we were interested in having the infection preventionists hear what's happening over each shift. So just out of curiosity, what did you do instead of huddles? What were the options? Some of the options were generated by our Uh, infection preventionists themselves. So one of them had the great idea to catch people while they were getting their COVID test, right as they were coming in to the nursing center. Yes, right? 
<laughs> pragmatic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So she would circle around and it was more of a one on one. So we uh -huh. were hoping for, you know, a huddle approach, but it was more of catch everyone one on one. And then another center came up with the idea of emailing yeah. that that might be a faster, more flexible approach. Yeah, that's, that's great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, so um, that's been some great discussion and perspective. Um, and any any final comments or wisdom to share on behalf of your research group uh, with our listeners? Thank you, Carl. I think I would just like to close up by thanking one more time the nursing homes and the infection preventionists who participated in this pilot and shared their experiences with us. And I'd also like to acknowledge the team behind this project. As I said, we worked collaboratively in partnership with the Connecticut Department of Public Health and also the research team and co-authors on this study. So um, thank you so much, Carl and Barb, for giving us this opportunity to share our work. All right, well, and ready. Many thanks for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed On The Go. So the second study we wanted to talk about today was based on data from the British Regional Heart Study, comprising a little over 2,000 men aged 71 to 92 years old from 24 British towns, and the Health, Aging, and Body Composition Study of about 3,000 men and women aged 70 to 79 years in the U.S. This data, or I should say these data, were used to consider whether oral health markers, denture use, tooth count, periodontal disease, self-rated oral health, dry mouth, and perceived difficulty eating were associated with frailty over an eight-year period. Barb, what did we learn from this paper? Well, thanks, Carl. To me, no surprise after the authors adjusted for sociodemographic, behavioral, and health-related factors that there was, a, there was a significant association between oral health and risk of progression to frailty. Specifically, there was an association of becoming frail with dentition having less than 21 teeth um, with or without denture use and with symptoms of dry mouth in um, the British Regional Heart Study. In the Health, Aging, and Body Composition Study, progression to frailty was associated with dry mouth and greater than or equal to two cumulative oral health problems. So progression to severe frailty was associated with periodontal disease after, again, we, they adjusted for all the covariates. The findings really indicated that oral health problems, particularly tooth loss and dry mouth, in older adults are associated with progression to frailty in later life. I think additional research is needed to determine if the interventions aimed at maintaining or improving oral health would actually reduce frailty. I mean, right. my thought about this all was that makes good logical sense. I really see the underlying cause here being food intake. To me, the take-home message was if your resident has poor oral health, to make sure that his or her diet is adequate while oral health is optimized. And, you know, I, I recently saw a patient in, health, in um, 
in an assisted living setting that just was going on and on about how thrilled she was that without her dentures, over the years, her gums had gotten so strong, she could just eat anything, even chew meat. So, you know, we think about how we can optimize really oral health make sure oral care is happening so that food intake is better. But that was kind of my take home from it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, a, you know, is it the chicken or the egg though, right? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it that people with, you know, people who are free, pre-frail uh, are, you know, have bad dentition as part of that package or whether, it, you know, is it is it nutrition? And uh, I guess further research will help, but the findings do seem intuitive. And maybe you are right that, you know, there's a sort of a progression with poor dentition, then begetting poor nutrition. And then from that, you get to functional decline and frailty uh, because of the poor nutrition. But, uh, you know, in my practice, totally anecdotally, but in in the decades I've been doing this kind of work, I've observed that uh, a lot of my patients who live into their 90s and 100s have most of their native dentition in pretty good shape. You know, I've always sort of wondered, uh, you know, nature versus nurture, were they just, did they pick their parents right? Well, you know, and good teeth genes, or were they people who took care of their teeth and their whole bodies and therefore, you know, were in better shape? And, uh, but it sounds like an excellent resource. And I, I tend to agree. Some, some residents do great eating regardless of dentition, while others don't. And there's certainly plenty of ways to provide options that are you know high in protein and adequate calorically that can hopefully help prevent or delay the onset of frailty but i i would look forward to future studies to see if if an intervention could reduce the uh uh although i don't know ethically how you <laughs> you know do a an intervention that's going to improve somebody's dental health uh and then withhold it from the other group right but uh, <laughs> yeah. well it's hard enough to improve dental health, you could probably just compare it to routine care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we really uh, we really could be doing so much better. I mean, there's that fluoride varnish that even a nurse could be just trained how to put on. It's super simple. It's inexpensive. And it really, really helps, you know, prevent uh, uh, caries. And, uh, you know, we, we don't, and periodontal disease, and we don't really use that much. And I, I think uh, that would be a good thing for us to try to get out in our buildings, you know. Uh, Anyway, the third study being highlighted today is an interesting look at the very political issue today of antipsychotic use by state. And this is not in nursing homes, this is in assisted living communities. This was an observational study using a sample of national Medicare data from 2017. And as you know, there's been a pretty robust reduction of antipsychotic use in dementia patients in nursing homes in the U.S., Uh, largely because of efforts by CMS and other stakeholders, including us at AMDA, uh, and the careful scrutiny on these medications that has undoubtedly helped reduce overprescribing in the SNF setting. But assisted living is really still the wild, wild west with no requirements for pharmacist medication regimen reviews, no reporting mandates, and no requirements for informed consent, at least that I'm aware of. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising that it might be uh, more problematic there. Uh, So what were the main findings of this review, Dr. Resnick? Yeah, so it is a few years old at this point in terms of the data, but the focus of the study was really describing the percentage of eligible AL person months 
in which antipsychotics were prescribed for each state. And there were a total of 20,867 AL residents with dementia that were included in the analyses. These individuals contributed to 1,904 718 person months of observations. On average, AL residents with dementia were prescribed antipsychotics, excluding, and they excluded those that had diagnosis for which the medications were indicated during 12.6% of their person months. This rate varied significantly by state with a low of 7.8% for Hawaii and a high of 20.5% for Wyoming. Not sure why. The majority <laughs> of states had an average exposure rate between 10 to 15%. And as anticipated, there were significant state variations in the prescribing of antipsychotics among AL residents with dementia using national data. These variations really may reflect differences in state regulations regarding the care of residents with dementia. And they also may be due to either regional or just specific provider philosophies. There's certainly a need for further investigation to ensure the high quality of care in these settings. And we certainly need an update from 2017. I have to say, in my own research in assisted living, we have found repeatedly that the rate of dementia is often higher in these sites than in nursing homes, as well as the rate of medication use. So the study was really no surprise to me, and I'm not sure that what we would see today would be different. I think um, it would probably show very much the same thing. Yeah, I can't say that in my travels and in my, uh, you know, uh, just I have not seen a big drop off uh, anywhere that I've that I've looked. Uh, and, you know, one thing about this study is they, I guess, FDA approved diagnoses. So if people had a history of not just schizophrenia, but, you know, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective and things like that, they would be uh, taken out of this equation. Yes. So so the real, you know, the, the actual raw um, prescribing percentages would have been even higher. So, I mean, this study is a helpful reminder about psychotropic drug use in, in assisted living. And the almost threefold difference between Hawaii and Wyoming is pretty sobering. Right? And I hate to suggest that more regulation and governmental agency interference would help. You know, I, I almost can't stand to have those words come out of my mouth. And I in no way mean to imply that, you know, some percentage of, of AL residents with dementia don't have a need for antipsychotics. Clearly, some people with dementia do. Uh, but they are perceived by some facilities and prescribers to be an easy fix for problematic behaviors. You know, let's just give them some Seroquel and uh, uh, whatever. So anyway, it's clear additional research is needed on this topic to assess where we are today with medication use in the assisted living setting and, and maybe seriously increased scrutiny and regulations should be considered to you know, reduce the harm that comes from uh, inappropriate use of these meds. Well, Carl, let's, let's hope that regulations aren't what's needed here since they haven't worked to date really, but let's <laughs> hope we can use papers like this to help providers think about appropriate use of medication. Because mm -hmm. every drug, whether it's an antipsychotic, a pain medication, whatever it is, every drug is potentially good 
and potentially harmful. It's just using them appropriately. So let's hope this kind of work moves us all in, in that direction. Yeah, spoken like a true geriatrician, Barb. Yeah, we, we do need an update, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, if uh, I, I wish I could believe that just by educating prescribers, we would solve this problem. But uh, I mean, look, uh, uh, look at the inappropriate treatment of asymptomatic bacteria, just to, for an example of how abysmally exactly. our uh, educational efforts have failed. Anyway, um, all right. So this last article is going to be a scoping review of fully immersive virtual reality and the impact of this intervention on general well-being. So specifically, the aim of this review was to assess the effectiveness of 360-degree interventions on well-being in older adults with or without cognitive impairment, as well as cyber sickness and attitudes towards this technology. So uh, tell us more. So this review included the use of four databases and articles published up through April of 2022, so about a year ago. The relevant papers were evaluated with regard to study design, the population, the contents, the duration of the intervention, and the outcomes. The results showed that there were a total of 2,262 articles that were screened. Of these, 10 articles were included. Wow. Most were hard. small pilot studies using mixed methods. The results, though, overall were positive for impact on apathy and emotion are mixed for other outcomes. There were a few adverse events for uh, use of the fully immersive virtual reality, which is a good thing. The use of uh, virtual reality 360 videos was feasible, it was safe, and generally it was enjoyable for older adults living in the community or residential aged care facilities. Virtual reality today really constitutes an emerging and promising therapeutic tool to manage psychosocial disorders. The review provides key considerations for the design and implementation of interventions using the 360 videos in clinical practice. And honestly, I found this interesting because we are seeing more and more of this, and I think we're going to see more and more particularly as the cost of materials come down and the options for doing this increase. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's new out there. I mean, uh, we're not certainly seeing it in every facility, but it's it's a, a new option. Yeah, it's kind of shiny and new and innovative and I like it. So, so Barb, first of all, can you explain to our listeners what cyber sickness is? I have some theories. Uh, yeah. I have certainly felt cyber sick myself on some days, but uh, I'm not sure that's what this uh, is referring to. Yeah, it, it, and thank you, Carl. I believe that there was no evidence of cyber sickness and I'm actually uh, working with one of my postdoctoral students doing a... Uh, virtual reality exercise intervention. So I do know about cyber sickness and it's kind of like a feeling of vertigo when you're wearing the headset. Oh, okay. Some so like people have it. Mm -hmm. yeah. and particularly there's a greater risk for it with the fully immersive virtual reality. There's also partial immersive, uh, which I guess you don't get it as much because you're not quite and deeply in there. 
Yeah, yeah. So so this seems like a really interesting option for treatment. I, I too, agree that we're seeing more and more use of, of virtual reality mm-hmm. in our adults. But can you tell me a little bit more about what kinds of things were encompassed by these virtual reality stimulations? I mean, I assume it's like, you know, they wear headphones, goggles, and, you know, are they going to the beach, going to the zoo, go, going to concerts, or what all kinds of stuff was it? I think it it really depends on what the focus of the intervention is. So this one was um, more for sort of psychological and cognitive issues. I mean, they do cognitive training. We have them for pain interventions where it's distraction. In the study I'm working with my doctoral student, uh, postdoctoral student on, it's uh, riding a bike and using virtual reality to kind of look at scenery. So you can make it whatever you want to make it be. Okay. So they could be riding through the Alps or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, cool. So, yeah, you know, I do think for select persons with dementia, this could be a great way to alleviate boredom and some of the distress Mm -hmm. behaviors we see, you know, when they're not getting enough stimulation or attention or interaction. I mean, put these things on them and, uh, you know, they could be having a really good day, right? Turn a, turn a really uh, awful, boring day, uh, you know, where you're scared or whatever into something uh, really fun. So I like yeah. that. Well, yeah. we'll see. I, I don't know how long you could sit there with it, but that will also be something that will be studied in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly we see people sitting for long periods of time in nursing homes. Exactly. Home. Yeah. The 24 hour virtual reality. <laughs> Uh, all right well barb any last uh comments before we wrap up no some i i think some great articles with uh certainly interesting ideas and thoughts for where we are and where we're going yeah great well that's going to wrap it up for this jammed on the go podcast for april 2023 under the leadership of our newish co-editors-in-chief drs paul katz and barbara resnick and with hard work from our whole team of associate editors, reviewers, and authors like Ms. Reddy and Ms. Beyer and her team, uh, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an influential resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. So please take a look at our April 2023 issue. And again, I'd like to thank Dr. Resnick and Ms. Reddy for sharing their time and expertise with JAMDA on the go today. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda On The Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.